Well, good morning and welcome. As we were worshiping this morning together, we were singing some wonderful hymns that made it clear that our justification is by faith alone, by God's grace alone, that there's nothing that we can bring to God, do for God, uh, that would justify us before him. You know, we, we cannot, uh, there's no list of things that we would do or not do that would make us any uh, more justified before him. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness sake. Okay, it is no longer a means by which to earn favor with God, never really was. It was intended to convict us of our helplessness and our sin and, and coming to God for his grace. The Jewish nation mistakenly thought that they could keep the law rather than depend upon the sacrificial system to deal with their sin as it took place. And so those who put their hope in the sacrifice were saved. Those who put their hope in their ability to keep the law were not. And the results were seen when Christ appeared and uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees all ganged up on him because he was attacking the very basis for their social status, which was that they were appearing to be more righteous than others. Now, one of the problems that we have in the church is that we do not rightly divide the word of truth. And we apply passages that are going after our self-righteousness. And we assume that that is all there is to say, when in fact we have been adopted now into the family of God, and we have a father who will not look the other way when we disregard what we know to be his will. And so if we think because we are complying with God's uh, discipline in our lives and bringing our lives into line with his will as we understand it and being conformed to the image of Christ, that somehow that is a violation of our being justified by grace alone, by faith alone. So there's two different contexts, and if we don't get the word of God rightly divided into these two contexts, we will, for instance, believe that even after being born again and having a new heart and a new spirit, that we're still under that pronouncement that our hearts are wicked beyond all things and, and who can know them. And, and we're, we're over here agonizing over the fact our heart is so wicked, and yet God is saying, no, wait a minute, I've given you a new heart. And it, that, that, that desires to please me. And that that is something that God has done. It's not our works that have done that. We're now saved and we're adopted. We're growing up. God's maturing us. And sometimes he's even spanking us. And not in order for us to have a foundation upon which to have self-righteousness, but only for us to partake of the righteousness of God in Christ and to grow up to full maturity and to begin to bear fruit for the glory of God. And all of that fruit and all of that maturity adds nothing to our justification before God. It is all a gift from God. Does, does that make sense? I, I'm so concerned that in the church today, because we do not rightly divide the word of truth, 
we carry on our backs a burden that I have to be good, and yet somehow I know that that doesn't have anything to do with my salvation. No, we, we get to grow up. We get to become Christ-like. It's a joy to become more mature. It's a joy to bear fruit. And in a, in a paradoxical way, it is even a joy to lay our lives down and sacrifice ourselves for the good of others and for the glory of God. So, having said all of that, this passage today is coming to us from the Apostle Paul, and it's speaking to us on the side of the adoption context. We are members of the family of God now. We're children of God. Jesus is not just our Lord and Savior. He's also our older brother. And, and so we're going to be more like Christ. And Paul's going to go after what he sees as being uh, an obstacle to our ability to love one another and to love him, show our love for him by the way we love one another. He's going to go after the things that are impediments to that uh, will that he has for our lives. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. And I'd like you to stand with me as we read God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and beginning at verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to open our eyes to the wonderful gift that this passage is to us. All the decisions that it makes for us as we comply, as we bow our knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all these areas of our lives. Lord, may we walk away from here today committed to you to live the quiet life that is described in this passage. And may it remove all the impediments that keep us from having the time and the energy and the money and the liberty to love one another as you have commanded us to do. And we ask all these things, not for our own righteousness sake, but rather as a display of your righteousness and your wisdom and your goodness in us and in our circumstances. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Now, I'd like to take you through a few major passages of God's word in regard to the Christian life. The first we find in Matthew 4 and verse 17, where we read, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. 
saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now I'd like to take you to another passage in Matthew 16 and verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And then again we go to Matthew chapter 28 in verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, in light of those three passages, how in the world can we possibly aspire to lead a quiet life? Paul is telling these Thessalonian believers that they are to love one another and they have no need to be told to love one another or taught how to love one another because the Holy Spirit within them teaches them to love one another. But Paul says, but I want you to uh, increase more and more. Another translation says, I want you to excel still more in this love for one another. And then he puts his finger on some issues. And these issues are where he sees the impediment. So how does this quiet life square with take up your cross and follow me and go and fulfill the Great Commission? How do you lead the quiet life while obeying those other commandments? Well, the answer has to do with our position in this world. We are, according to Jesus in his great priestly prayer, in the world but we are not of the world. You see that in John chapter 17 and verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Remember, we're told elsewhere that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As, I, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, how can we be in the world without being of the world? 
Well, this little preposition, in and of, are very important in Christian theology. You see, by being made ambassadors for Christ, we have the standing of one as an ambassador who's been sent from another nation, in our case, from another realm, from heaven. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, every born-again believer in Christ is an ambassador for Christ. Every believer has the responsibility to take the gospel to the world. This is not something that God has reserved for special cases or for special gifts or special people. We are all of us intended to be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ and to make disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do this in the status of an ambassador. And and the interesting thing about an ambassador is he is in your country, but he's not of your country. He's there to deliver the message that he's been given by those who sent him. He's not there to make things up. He's not there to share his opinions. He's not there to collude with you as to how you can deal with this, uh, this one who has sent him. He's, on, he's loyal to the one that sent him. He's only delivering the mail, not writing the letter. And in many ways, this status has been lost sight of as people have thought that Paul was just referring to himself as an apostle and his colleagues as, as fellow laborers in that field. But no, it is clear we are all, if we all have the Great Commission, then we all have the status of an ambassador. We all have the responsibility to reach out to our neighbor and deliver the mail that's been handed to us by a God who loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And the way in which he loves the world is by giving his only begotten son. And so as such, now this is a complicated statement here, but try to follow the grammar. I tried to make this as simple as I could, but it is somewhat of a complicated truth. As such, as an ambassador for Christ, we are in the world in order to take the gospel concerning Jesus to the world. But we are no longer of the world because we are now commissioned by God and supported by God to serve as his official representatives. So in that status, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9 through 12 sums up very concisely the way of life, the manner of life that would be appropriate for an ambassador for Christ who is in the world but no longer of the world to live. So let's take a look at it a little more closely, try to unpack these passages And hopefully come to the end of this message this morning with a clear view of where the obstacles are that impede the expressions of our love for one another and for the world around us and how we might be able to adjust our life, our lifestyle, our way of living in order to remove those impediments. First of all, love is both the means and the end of the Christian life. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Paul writes, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that we should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now in Galatians chapter 5, we have what's called an uh, ellipsis in, in grammar. And in an ellipsis, uh, there is an unspoken part of the thought that is intended to be inserted by the reader. Okay? And so in this passage, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love avails everything. That's the ellipsis. That we're supposed to pick up the thought of avails nothing or it doesn't avail anything to love which avails everything. All of the Christian life is summed up in this idea of loving God and loving one another. And so much so that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 that if you're loving as you ought to be loving, then the entire law is fulfilled. And it's because no one is going to do any harm to his neighbor if he's uh, loving his neighbor. And so God teaches all of us by the Holy Spirit within us to love one another just as he has loved us. And so this love is the primary visible mark of our salvation. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to have moments where you're miffed, okay? Where somebody says or does something and in your mind or under your breath you're going, what an idiot, okay? That is a human reaction to displeasure and it should be repented of, okay? But don't think that you've lost your salvation because you're talking under your breath, you know? That's one of the reasons the Bible says that if you could just control your lips, you could control everything. You know, James says your mouth is like a little rudder on the ship and it's just hugely influential. So I'm not saying if you cursed under your breath, you've lost your salvation. But I am saying don't, don't give into that. Don't give yourself over to it because you're taught by the Holy Spirit to love people. And the people that are the hardest to love are the ones that need it the most. And so for you to be that person who's patient, when others are not, not patient, is, is do, you're doing God's work. You're loving the unlovely, even loving your enemies. That's, that's the, uh, the sign that God's DNA is in you. This is because God himself is love. We see in 1 John 4, 9, or 4 verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's pretty strong. Okay, if that's not enough, how about 1 John 4, 16? And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Now, John is very much, his mind is in this metaphysical place of, you know, making these pronouncements, and sometimes we go, John, how can that be true? And, and he's basically saying, if you could see everything from my perspective, you'd see exactly why this is true. But he just tosses off the phrases like this and says, go think about that for a while. So if we are children of God, we are taught by the Holy Spirit to love one another. And to love our enemies shows that we are children of our Father in heaven. 
This is an extensive passage, but I think it's worth reading in this context of this message. Matthew 5 and verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good, and sins rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now when you see Jesus make reference to the tax collectors, he's referring to a a person in the Jewish culture who is the lowest of the lowest. This This is a traitor to the nation of Israel, an agent of Rome collecting high taxes from people who can't afford to pay often with the context of leaving them homeless or with the inability to to do their business because their their livestock are confiscated. Even their children are confiscated and sold into what we would have to call some kind of trafficking. These people are hated. They are in the same category as as a pedophile today. They're in the same category as a mass murderer, a terrorist, a serial killer. And Jesus is saying, even the serial killers love those who love them. What good, what, what good is that? What, what benefit do you get from, from doing the kind of loving that all of these horrible, evil people do? There's honor among thieves. And if you greet your brethren only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors greet one another? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly father, your father in heaven is perfect. Now we read that and say, well, that's impossible. I could never be perfect. Well, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is in the, in the process of bringing you to full maturity in Christ. And what are we told will happen? It says, when we see him, we will what? Be like him. So right now, it would be dishonest to say, yeah, I'm, I'm perfect. You're not. You're in process. You are in process. You are on your way. And whatever has not been completed by that moment when you see Christ will be completed. And God will finish what he has started. When you see Christ, you will be like him. So that's our hope. That we will be perfected. So love, even love for our enemy, is the paternity test of the family of God. And so we should accept that and realize, no, this is not something that adds to our righteousness. This is not something that's going to be a basis for our justification before God. This is an expression of our being a member of the family of God. And all of this is being administered in love rather than in judicial justice. 
We're not standing now before the judge of all the earth. We're standing before our heavenly Father. Does that make sense to you to, to make that division and to rightly divide the word of truth? So, this is why we must not allow anything to impede the expression of our love. If it's within our power, now I want to qualify this and you'll see this in a moment. If it's within our power to remove the impediment, then we would be wise to do so. And it would please God for us to do so. And if we refuse to do so when we could, we may in fact receive God's discipline because it matters to God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 10, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. There's more love to be expressed, and it's being impeded. So what is this that interferes with our ability to love one another more and more as God intends? I'm going to just tell you right now, you're probably not going to like it. Because it's in the same category as drop your nets and follow me. Okay? So think about that. If, if, if Jesus were to appear to you right now and say, okay, whatever you're doing, stop. I want you to go in this direction. So the answer is found in our lifestyle choices. These are things that are within our power. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, that you aspire, also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Now this remarkable commandment is commanding all Christians to make the kinds of lifestyle choices that lead to greater and greater liberty to love one another. So I'm not here to tell you what to do. God is telling you, figure it out. Okay? He's saying, I want you to look at your circumstances in light of these statements and figure it out. Because it's not going to be that complicated. This is our personal calling to leave our nets and follow Jesus. This is our opportunity to say, okay, Lord, if there's anything about my way of life that's interfering with my loving my neighbor and even my, my enemy as I ought to, then, Lord, I want to change it if it's within my power to do so. So Paul's touched on these issues elsewhere. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, we read, let him who stole steal no longer. Now there's a lifestyle change, right? I mean, that's a radical turnaround. So what is he supposed to do? Just stop stealing? Is that it? I don't steal anymore, Lord. No. But rather, let him labor. Working with his hands what is good. Can you, do you realize how hard this would be for a successful thief to stop stealing and start working and actually earning money. And then, not only that, but to start sharing and giving away what he earns, which is so hard to do because if before he could just go steal it. This is 
drop your nets and follow me. In order that you may have something to give to him who has need. This is what repentance looks like for a thief. So what does repentance look like for us? In Titus chapter 3 and verse 13, Peter, or Paul is writing uh, to Titus and asking him to send Zenos the lawyer. Now why would Paul need a lawyer? He's in jail. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, who is a theologian and a, a Bible scholar. Send these guys on their journey with haste. You know, ASAP, right? That they may lack nothing. That means give them the fundings that they need to be able to pay the tolls and, and the ship uh, uh, ticket on the, on the next ship and get them, get them here as fast as you can. And then, as Paul thinks about these two wonderful gifts to the body of Christ, Zenos the lawyer and Apollos of the man mighty in the scriptures, he says, and let our people also, you know, like Zenos and Apollos, learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, like the urgent need I'm having right now, that they may not be unfruitful. So Paul is is saying to Titus, put this in one of your sermons, Titus. You know, encourage our people to do what they need to do in order to maintain good works. Now, we, we add the S on here in English, and I think that's partly because we like to think that anything the Bible tells us to do is somehow spiritual and religious. And yet in the context, we're talking about a lawyer. So I think it would be just as appropriate to leave the S off and say, to be able to maintain good work, which is a much broader category in the Christian mind than good works, which kind of go into the realm of charity and volunteerism and all those other things. That, that do not involve uh, making a livelihood. I think Paul is saying here, our people need to pursue uh, the ability to do good work, to meet urgent needs. That is going to involve generosity, that they may not be unfruitful, that they have something to offer, they bring something to the project. Paul envisions a competent, hardworking people of God who are zealous for good works so as to shine in the darkness of this fallen world and still be able to respond to the pressing needs of others, to be fruitful. Paul has a vision here of what the body of Christ would look like in its maturity. So what specifically does God command us to do here? Well, he he starts putting his finger on some issues. First of all, he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. Now, the idea of quietness in this context has to do with as opposed to a busy life. You know, a life that has no margin, that cannot respond to needs of others because you've already made another commitment or you've got a job that requires you to be here and you just can't get out of it. In other words, you lose all the flexibility if your life is so busy, so, so nailed down with all kinds of other commitments that you just can't respond to the unexpected. We should expect the unexpected. 
As a church begins to grow, there will be members who will have crises, and we will all need to know how to, in a sense, in a small sense, drop our nets and follow Jesus. Go and do the thing that God wants us to do. And sometimes we can't do that. We, just, we would be morally, uh, uh, we'd be sinning. We'd be lying to our employer. We'd be, we'd be breaking our contracts. We would be breaking our promises. And, and the question is, should you have made those promises? Should you have allowed yourself to get locked in to this kind of routine that leaves you with no margin to respond to needs as they arise? That's the question. And I'm not telling you what to do here. But if you start thinking of something that you could do, maybe that's the Holy Spirit saying, you know, this is an area where love is being impeded by some lifestyle decisions. So how can we best aspire to, and that doesn't just mean wish for, it means work for, work toward. When you aspire to something, it means you're making every opportunity a step in that direction, okay? Otherwise, you're not really aspiring. You're just daydreaming. And so, he says, to mind your own business. Now, some have taken this as a modern colloquial phrase, like, why don't you mind your own business? Keep your nose out of my affairs. That's no, that's no business of yours. That is not what Paul's saying here. How do we know? Because he follows it with, and to work with your own hands. As opposed to working for somebody in some way that does not produce value. And this is not a suggestion. Paul says, we commanded you to do this. Imagine the lifestyle changes that took place in Thessalonica when Paul commanded them to begin minding their own businesses working with their own hands, getting out of certain illicit, immoral trades, things they could not, with a clear conscience, continue to benefit from, to prosper from. Do you realize how much of a a transition took place in the lives of these new believers living in a pagan culture in which it would be like living in a combination of Las Vegas and, you know, I don't know what other sinful place in the world we can describe, but it's a place where sin is legal. In fact, it's a major business. You know, the, the Portland, yeah. The mayor is in it. You know, the, the city council's in it. Everybody's in it. And you think you're going to somehow just drop out of this entire economy? I mean, in Ephesus, they made little silver idols so that people could worship Diana. <laughs> and those people rioted because the Christians were no longer uh, saying these are gods, that they were worthless. They were just, they were just worth the silver uh, that was in them. They were not, in fact, able to do anything else. They were just dead idols. So Paul is commanding here that these Christians would mind their own business and to work with their own hands. Now, I don't want to go too far into this issue, but there are some businesses, some careers that are necessary. I'm not going to say they're not necessary. But just because they're necessary doesn't mean you have to do them. Okay? They're not illegal. 
but that doesn't mean you have to do them. And I'm talking about the kind of careers that don't produce any wealth. They don't produce anything. They just make money off of manipulating other people's money or other people's credibility. You know, they, they are uh, legal scams, if you can put it that way, where people are being taken advantage of in ways they don't even realize they're being taken advantage of. They're buying something that's not even real and that when they try to go and get it, they find out they never had it. There's some insurance like that. There's some accounting like that. Uh, there's some law firms that are like that. And so Paul is saying, rather than getting into some kind of livelihood in which you're not actually producing any wealth, why not get into something where you are producing something good that actually has tangible value that you can put into the marketplace, that you can make a good living? And remember, you've got God behind this blessing the work of your hands. Those promises are still there. We might as well continue to claim them. You know, I claim God's promises concerning my little terrarium shop. And it's doing very well. And every time I've had my little terrarium shop, I have done very well financially. In fact, right now I'm looking to hire an employee. If any of you are looking for a job, I'm, I'm wanting to hire somebody for about 20 hours a week. So, what do I do? I work with my hands. I plant terrariums, and I teach other people how to plant terrariums with their hands. And I make a good income from it. So I'm, I'm not trying to be silly here. And I'm not asking you to go into the terrarium business, at least not in my area, okay? But I am wide open to helping others in other parts of the state and other parts of the country that want to get into this business that I'm in. If they want to use it as a tent-making business to be able to pursue ministry without being unduly dependent upon the church for their support. All these things are, are in Paul's mind here that you're to mind your own business and work with your hands, and this is not a suggestion. This is a commandment. So why would Paul want us all to be self-employed? And by this I want to emphasize that Paul is not saying, go start a business where you can have hundreds of employees. Now that might happen, and that's cool, and you can do a lot of good things with that, but the vast majority of businesses throughout history have had one or two people staffing it, and, and they're then getting all the income from it. And if it's a business that's run wisely, it's not that burdensome you know, to show up and do the work of a blacksmith and shoe some horses and get paid and, and go to bed at night and not have to worry about how you're going to pay your bills because there's always another horse to shoe, right? <laughs> if you've got a real skill at a real trade... You've got security. You know, just don't go get your arm whacked off, right? So, he says that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. Now, outside is referring to people outside the church. So, how might they be walking improperly toward those who are outside? Well, Paul talks about this in various places, and we're going to look at some of those now, but God wants his people to be more free to serve him. And being free to serve him means not being enslaved by your fellow man in any way. Okay, not being enslaved. So, which one are you? Now, I, I hesitated to get into this today because it could be an entirely separate message. 
But in the context, I think it's needed. Okay, and so I'm going to take a moment to unpack this idea. Are you the Lord's freedman, or are you the Lord's slave? Now, I want you to raise your hand. Which one would you like to be? Do you want to be the Lord's freedman? Raise your hand. Okay. Does anybody want to be the Lord's slave? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, the fact is you can't be both. You've got to be one or the other. All right? So let's ask again. How many of you want to be the Lord's freedman? That's not what it says. It says the Lord's freed. What is a freed man? What's a freed man? Huh? Not a slave. Not a slave to who? Not that. Look at it. Look at the passage. The, you're, you're, the Lord is freeing you. So you don't have to serve him. That's what it's saying. If, if, <laughs> this, is, this has been so misunderstood in the church. Let me read it. Let each one remain in the calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Now this is a slave to man. Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. That means do it. If you have the opportunity to become free, take it. Why? For he who is called in the Lord while a slave to other men is the Lord's freed man released from what you would have been obligated to do if you had the freedom. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. That means there's no moral obligation out there that's going to interfere with you serving the Lord with complete freedom. So, you were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Brethren, let each one of you remain with God in that state in which he was called. Don't, don't let it be a source of condemnation. We're only obligated to do what we have the freedom to do. But sometimes we have enough freedom to gain more freedom so that we can become less obligated and therefore more liberated to serve the Lord. That's the impediment we're talking about. So do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it and become the Lord's slave, if at all possible. Now, to illustrate the way this works in practice, we actually have an example in the scriptures. And it also happens to be absolute evidence that God has a sense of humor. I'll read it to you. This is actually two slides to cover this passage but you're going to notice that Paul is really enjoying writing this letter. He says, therefore, writing to Philemon, see, Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus has run away from his master and somewhere meets up with the apostle Paul and becomes a Christian. And so one day Onesimus tells Paul that he's a runaway slave. And Paul says, well, who's your master? He says, it's this real jerk named Philemon. You know, no slave is going to talk positive about his master, right? This is really jerk. He's unfair. He's not nice. He's mean. His name's Philemon. And Paul says, Philemon? I know Philemon. I led Philemon to Christ. (laughs) So Paul says, I'm going to write a letter. And I'm going to have it delivered by your hand. Onesimus. 
So here it is. He says, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm in jail. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Now this is a play on words on the name of Onesimus, which means useless. Okay? Now, I'm sending him back. He's got this letter in his hand. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Twist, twist, twist. I mean, you, Philemon's got to have a really sore elbow by this time, right? Now, let's continue. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you. So even if you receive Onesimus back, receive him back not as a slave, but as a free brother in Christ. So the pressure is on. He says, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you count me a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, Put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention that you owe me your, even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you. Now, it's not obedience to Paul here. It's obedience to the Lord knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare me a room, for I trust that I, through your prayers, will be granted to you. By this time, Philemon's arm is laying on the floor. Okay. His, he really has no way out, realistically. But we have to ask the question, what did Philemon do? What, what was his decision? If Philemon said no to Paul, then Onesimus would be the Lord's freedman, released by God from his slavery to God in order to fulfill his obligation to his earthly master, Philemon. So you don't want to be the Lord's freedman if you can avoid it. If, however, Philemon relented and said yes to Paul, then Onesimus became Philemon's freedman released from slavery by his earthly master to be free to serve God as Christ's slave with the Apostle Paul on the mission field. Do you see how this works? I'm not making this up. This is God's will for us 
to aspire to a quiet life, to be able to live our lives in a way that is not dependent upon especially unbelieving people to, to control our schedule and to give us, have to give us permission to do anything that we feel God would be calling us to do, including share the gospel, by the way. The point here is God did not want to have a runaway slave serving him in the mission field. God was unwilling to release Onesimus from service to him so that he would, could fulfill... God was willing to release Onesimus from service to him so that he could fulfill his obligations to his earthly master. Now, I know this is hard, especially when you're talking about something like the institution of slavery. But what if we're not talking about that kind of slavery? What if we're just talking about debt, financial debt, consumer debt, the kind of debt that's illiquid and that you can't just easily get out from under once you get into it? What if a person can't go to the mission field until they pay off their student loans or their, whatever their loans might be? You see, we're, what we're going here is if you enter into rash vows and, and unwise commitments and promises and contracts, then like Onesimus, you can't just drop everything and go to the mission field without violating your moral obligations. And so Paul is telling us, Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Earn the respect of outsiders. Don't be dependent upon others. So now we can see why God commands us to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman, likewise he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Now in that context, read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded, that you may walk properly toward outsiders and that you may lack nothing. Other translations have it that you may be, not be dependent on anybody. Our lifestyle decisions affect the freedom that we have to serve Christ as Christ's slave. Our rash vows and our debts can bind us in moral obligations that we cannot get out of. And if that is the case, Paul is telling us, don't worry about it. God's going to use you right where you are. He's not saying you're under condemnation for the fact that you can't just drop things and go whenever you want. But he's saying if you ever have the opportunity to become free, take it. Because it's a much more wonderful thing to be Christ's slave than to be Christ's freed man. In such cases, we become the Lord's freed man, free to fulfill the obligations we have to our human masters by law and by moral obligation. And Paul tells us to not be concerned. So our lifestyle decisions do matter. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. That's a wonderful commission. And that commission has made us an ambassador for Christ. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were, 
were pleading through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then we come to 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 4, 11 through 12. Aspire to lead a quiet life. Do you see how these passages relate to one another? Am I effectively connecting the dots so you can see the bigger picture of what God has for us? So, accept the Great Commission. Here am I, Lord, send me. I am reporting for duty. I, I want to be a part of this great adventure to take the gospel to the nations. Lord, here I am. And in order to do so without impediment, I'm going to aspire to lead the quiet life of an ambassador for Christ. Living in this world without being of this world. Free from being a slave in order to go and make disciples of the nations. If this message today has the impact upon you that I pray that it will have, then you'll begin to assess your circumstances and make some decisions and aspire to move in a direction that results in greater freedom. You cannot do this overnight, especially if you have moral obligations to fulfill. But you can change the course of the ship and expect God to fill the sails with his wind and begin to move in that new direction on the compass, the, 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 the direction that leads to greater freedom to serve the Lord. I don't want anyone to come away from this with any sense of condemnation or guilt. Paul releases us from that by saying don't be concerned about it. But he does add the phrase, but if you have the opportunity, take it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness and for the riches of your word. And I ask that you would use uh, these uh, passages of your word to open our eyes to see the bigger picture. Help us, Lord, to be wise. Give us the wisdom we need. Give us doors of opportunity, Lord. They may not be easy to go through, but they are doors that are open. And I pray that you'd help us to walk through those doors, looking forward to being useful to you as a discipler, as one who makes disciples. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.